Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Crypto Hipsters Podcast, where I interview founders and co-founders, entrepreneurs and artists, executives and stay-at-home hipsters in crypto and blockchain around the world. And I have an amazing podcast for you today. Let's get to it. And today I have a, an amazing guest. Uh, he is the CEO of Capitalinked, the co-founder of TransitNet, and the author of The PayPal Wars. Welcome, Eric Jackson. Eric, welcome to the show. Jamil, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You're very welcome. Uh, so um, to kick things off, you know, uh, what is your background and is it a logical background for what you're doing now? Ooh, logical is a loaded word and a bit of a stretch, but I'm happy to tell you uh, my background. Or you could, I'll let you and the listener uh, decide for, for yourselves. Um, so my background, I, I, I went into uh, financial services way back in the, uh, the late 90s. And, it, you know, I kind of came out of Stanford um, thinking that I was going to have a very typical career going into like financial consulting and, and you know, learning all these uh, tricks of the trade in, in that area, working with a lot of different types of clients, um, doing different, uh, you know, financial projects. And pretty quickly, I realized that wasn't for me that there wasn't a lot of ownership in that, that it wasn't um, actually, you, you weren't really learning uh, that much. You were just kind of uh, fighting fires. And when an opportunity arose to uh, to do something very different, I took it. Uh, a friend of mine uh, that I had known from my time at Stanford had started a little um, startup at the, in those uh, around that time that was called Confinity. And it sounded, uh, it sounded pretty interesting. And they had just launched a product a, product, a little product that you might have heard of, PayPal. And uh, in December of 99, I jumped ship. I left uh, my consulting job. I went to uh, go to uh, work at PayPal. I didn't even know what my job was going to be there. Uh, my, that friend that I mentioned uh, was uh, Peter Thiel, uh, who, of course, is uh, pretty well known today as the first investor in Facebook and one of the uh, leading tech investors and political thinkers in, in the U.S. Um, and uh, the uh, he said, "Come on over. We'll figure out a job for you later." Uh, and that made sense, I guess. In 1999, logic that all made sense. So I jumped in without knowing what I was going to do, and uh, wound up uh, beginning my career at PayPal. And uh, that's uh, led to uh, a, a long and uh, uh, really exciting uh, time in technology, where I'm now, as you uh, mentioned earlier, running a couple of different tech companies, uh, Caplink and Transitnet. Great, thank you. So let's talk about let's let's talk about Caplink first. Uh, what is that all about? Uh, how does it work? Sure. Yeah, I started Caplink about uh, ten years ago. Caplink is a um, a B two B cloud based service that helps companies exchange information securely. So, if you want to think about uh, the way information can be exchanged, there's there's great services that are more focused on consumers, like uh, Dropbox. I use Dropbox myself uh, for personal things. Um, you can use Google Docs. Uh, there, there's tools that kind of facilitate uh, file hosting and file sharing. Box is another one. Um, but to really have something where you've got a, a, a situation that involves sensitive data that needs to be transferred from one company to another, but maybe not given to them, maybe maybe provided for due diligence, maybe uh, you know allow access allowed for, for certain reasons of planning, 
So like a situation such as a merger or an acquisition, uh, a financing deal, uh, maybe a licensing deal between companies. So CapLink provides the tools that can be used as a virtual data room or a secure workspace to facilitate those types of uh, transactions where you can uh, put security and tracking around the info you send over and the recipient party can view it and access all that data. But unlike say a Dropbox, they can't keep it or you know go and uh, download it all and, and continue to use it without your permission. So CapLink gives you those controls to monitor that. So it gets used by a lot of startups for, um, uh, for financing and for, uh, you know, sort of board reporting and for uh, M&A activities. Uh, but our, our primary our primary customers actually tend to be investment banks and financial services companies. So how does how does the virtual data room? How does that work? How do they access it and use it? Well, it's cloud based, so you, you get uh, the ability to upload uh, if you need to hundreds or, or thousands of files into uh, CapLint uh, through, uh, you know, through an encrypted connection. And then you can uh, permission that uh, that access. So you can give different parties different levels of access. So for example, um, if you're a uh, 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 financial services startup, some sort of, let's say you're a startup and you're uh, in the process of uh, raising capital, you could use CapLink to uh, invite outside parties to come and view documents. So maybe uh, you wait until someone signs a term sheet before they get to see your financials or something that's a little bit more sensitive. So you could have that level of control to kind of gradually uh, give it out. Our, our most common use case, though, is actually um, M&A transactions, uh, so mergers and acquisitions. And so in situations like that, uh, a company that's uh, being acquired, they might be working with a banker and they would allow a they would allow uh, uh, the banker to make a few pieces of information available to prospects and then if someone were really interested and for example uh signed a letter of intent then they could make you know the hundreds of files that might be needed uh available to uh to do um, due diligence so that you know the transaction could be uh, uh culminated so so that's how CapLink works it really gives it gives users a lot of control over the data they're sharing so you can make sure that the person who's been identified as the recipient of that information can get access to just the information they need no one else can you can track that their usage and then if needed you can cut it off if the deal falls apart or something else happens that would be a logical end to it you could pull all that data back so it gives you uh, it gives the user a lot of control and allows um, businesses to uh, to do deals guy I met a man who was a consultant he's a consultant in post merger integration now and he created one of the first data room virtual data room so i never knew what it was i never asked him but i'm glad you just answered that for me so thank you um i'm You're sitting welcome. here yeah. i'm sitting here and I'm, I'm listening how can we apply that to how could we apply that to to crypto and are there opportunities for m a in crypto that would leverage the use of your data rooms I think, Jamil, that's a great question. I think it absolutely is the case because I think crypto is, uh, if I could put on my my sort of big picture hat for just a minute and, and offer just some some perspective from kind of the ten thousand foot view, I think crypto is a fascinating field, and, and maybe we talk about more about that in a moment. Uh, but uh, the promise of crypto is slowly being fulfilled, and that means that. There are a lot of companies that are building innovative solutions around the crypto ecosystem that will, uh, as time goes on here, start to be uh, acquired and uh, 
consolidated uh, with other companies in space. It's just a natural thing that's going to happen, whether it's crypto companies acquiring other crypto companies or uh, fintech or financial services firms uh, acquiring crypto companies. That's going to happen. And so CapLinked is a great tool for those situations. I would definitely recommend anyone that's running a crypto company or any sort of a, a young company that might eventually be uh, acquired uh, to get a data room actually ahead of time. So you can start storing, you know, the type of information that would be needed for due diligence. So you're ready whenever the time comes, either for fundraising or for uh, for being acquired. It just makes your life a lot easier if you've got that uh, already got that in place. So I think there's definitely a, a value proposition for the Caplanes would offer to a uh, to a crypto company. And I do think that we'll can expect to see the crypto industry begin to mature and the concept of more, um, you know, startups. Uh, being consolidated as something that will probably be a, a trend over the next couple of years. Yeah, I agree. I see that too. Um, so let, let's ask you then um, transit. Let's shift the transit net, right? Uh, what is transit net? How does it all work? Um, what's that all about? Sure. Yeah. And, and transit net really was spun out of my company, Caplane. So Caplane, of course, as you, as you know, you confer by now has a core competency and kind of security verifying information goes to the right person and you know facilitating transactions getting done and so that was kind of the core competency led to the idea of transitnet and transitnet in short is um is a project that is building a title registry for for crypto and i think that that probably takes deserves a minute to uh, make sure we get all our terms right there um so transitnet is looking at crypto and and really saying like look crypto as an ecosystem would actually benefit greatly uh, from the concept of title. Title, as I, I assume most of your listeners would know, is really like a docu is documentation of proof of ownership. So title is very common with a lot of real world assets, uh, certainly for, for, for properties. So if anyone's ever bought a house before, they probably remember having to go through the title check and buying title insurance. Uh, but title also applies for vehicles um, and title also, also can apply to money. Money is essentially, or, or fiat money, is essentially a bearer asset, right? If I have a $20 bill and I lose it and someone else finds it, you know, if I'm not there to, to stake a claim to it, it's effectively theirs, right? So it's a bearer asset. Whoever has it controls it and owns it. Um, but we don't want all of our fiat to be limited as a bearer asset because there's risk of loss and theft. Uh, that comes along with that. So while it's handy to have some money in your wallet, you don't want to put all of your fiat money under your mattress. Uh, instead, you you want to have it titled. You want to take it to uh, an institution that can put it in an account, and the account effectively is titled, and it wraps title around the, the fiat money. So you know that that gives you optionality, right? You can put some you know, titled money in, or some money in a title account in a bank, you know, checkings or, or savings. You put some of it in a brokerage. Um, you could have some of it in a money market. So there's different options around where you would put, um, you know, which type of title account you put money in. Well, the concept of title is limited in crypto. You can certainly see it uh, in custodial situations, but the idea of having title on anything self-hosted uh, just doesn't exist. It, effectively, you're you're really, in a way, sort of sticking the money under the mattress. Kind of the, that's kind of in some sense an analogy where you don't have a significant ability to really prove that that's yours. And in cases of of loss, of theft, uh, of being able to use it for a financial transaction, 
um, those, you know, you're somewhat limited uh, by that lack of title. So what TransitNet aims to do is to create an optional uh, registry where uh, parties that want to take advantage of this can go and uh, create a title record around their crypto. So it's going to give them additional protection, additional control, and uh, the ability to, um, uh, to uh, uh, you know, be able to document uh, that they own this crypto that's in a wallet that they're, uh, that they're hosting. I could see that working like on a C5 exchange, a custodian exchange, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And that's a pro. What would be some cons? Well, I, I think, and first of all, I'll just mention that um, the Transitnet title registry is, uh, we're looking at launching that within a couple months. So I'll mention that, that anyone that's interested in learning more about it or getting on the wait list for it can go to the Transitnet website at transitnet.io. So that's transitnet.io to get on the wait list and uh, you know, have an invitation uh, when the uh, registry launches to be able to try it out. I, I think a lot of the, you know, to the extent that there's pushback, I mean, I think the, the pros are that at a high level title should increase the usefulness and security of crypto. And that if you have more usefulness and security in crypto, it's actually going to improve the, uh, the ecosystem, drive up adoption, make crypto more uh, valuable, useful, and a bigger sort of ecosystem around it uh, for everyone that's a participant. So we think that's a, uh, you know, a winning proposition. And that's what we're trying to do is to build out a piece of infrastructure that helps the ecosystem overall, because we're, we're bullish on crypto and we think that's, that's useful. Um, and of course it's optional. It's, it's, you know, it's not, it's not big brother. It's not like something that's tracking you. It's, you know, your own choice to go and create those records. We think that the, uh, you know, the ability to also have, you know, greater proof of ownership, the ability to, uh, we think that'll enhance the ability to get insurance on wallets. We think that that'll help with uh, recovery in, in cases where there might be theft and litigation uh, to be able to prove that you actually own the crypto. We think that it could help with financial situations such as um, uh, being able to use it as uh, collateral or for proof of reserve. And, and also, it, you know, for business functions, like when you've got to do your, you know, end of year closing the books, to be able to give your auditor, your CPA, you know, a, a proof of title as they pull together those uh, financial statements, uh, that should be, those are all helpful things. So those are the pros. I think the, the cons, you know, the pushback tends to come from people that are concerned about privacy and, and thinking that, you know, somehow having a third party off chain record uh, like this is, you know, contrary to the spirit of, of crypto. And, and to some extent, you know, they have a point because if you just view crypto as a bearer asset, then that concept of, uh, you know, having a place where you could track, uh, you know, track your, uh, your possession of it, um, I guess is, uh, you know, to, to, you know, this is perhaps a little bit different than that, but that concept, but, you know, we're looking at it as, you know, the counter to that, I think, is that we're extending optionality and we're extending, you know, more ability to use crypto and for parties that want to have perhaps some of their crypto uh, to be titled that we're giving them the ability to do that. So we actually think that that's, uh, you know, not a uh, not a terribly sound argument, especially since this is an industry solution. It's not like this is Big Brother or the government mandating anything. Um, we think that it's, uh, you know, something that's pretty, uh, uh, pretty exciting and actually pretty helpful for uh, for crypto. So so that would be my response to, uh, you know, anyone that had uh, such concerns. Yeah, so I'm just thinking about this week. There was a few people who I know who received a malware attack on their MetaMask wallets 
and they entered their seed, seed phrase into that malware and they're they're they lost a lot of money um out of metamask was transferred somewhere else thinking how that how your solution could have helped in that situation that's a that's a good question and in situations where uh obviously there you know when when there's when there's theft or loss that can happen and and we all know that that can happen in crypto having the ability to go to the authorities um and document what you you know that this was yours that you owned it that you have a record uh from before of title around it is going to help uh in a situation where you have a claim and there's the ability to uh, to do something to enforce that claim and recover it so you know whether it's with law enforcement or um, going through a legal process uh to get uh, redress uh having title is going to enhance your capability to do that i think that's a pretty clear uh pretty clear argument that you can document what you own and what was taken from you and that you are indeed the rightful owner that is only going to assist in a situation like that uh also we we think that the very fledgling uh insurance market uh for crypto wallets against loss and theft we think could uh, could also be benefited from this there there are a few um underwriters out there that will write policies to this but but not that many they're hard to get uh, they're primarily limited to uh professional investors so for example uh funds that do investment in crypto uh that uh, to have the you know coverage against loss or theft of uh, assets in their wallet so we think that you know by increasing clarity of title and providing a, a trusted third party's record keeping of ownership that that can help that market and perhaps enable um, the insurance market to uh, to mature and expand uh, so if that's if that proves to be the case then that's also another way that, that mitigates that kind of risk and uh, would benefit uh, benefit people from using a, a title registry like transitnet I can see that. Yep, I agree. Um, thank you. So um, I know I want to shift gears here a little bit. I know you said that you entered the financial services space back in 1999. Uh, so you've been around a while, you know, since your early days in PayPal. What have you seen that's changed and matured and what trends are you witnessing now from your perspective? Oh, that's a great question, Jamil. I appreciate you asking it. Um, the man, you know, fintech wasn't even a category back then. And, and of course, I'm talking about financial technologies. I apologize for the jargon. Uh, but but financial technology, the broad area of fintech, which, you know, sir, it has overlap with crypto, right? They're not they're not completely separate. They're not completely the same, but the, there's overlap there. But it wasn't even a category back then. Right. I mean, that was that was like, uh, you know, Internet 1.0.com era everything was a dot com is all kind of thought of as as one uh, category and there was very little happening in the uh the world of sort of uh, financial innovation that was going on online like you just you know banks had set up a website to basically view your you know your account records or something that's about about all that uh that existed at that point and there's definitely not much happening around payments uh you know other than being able to take a credit card payment online which was kind of the equivalent of using it in a store or filling it out in a form to go in the mail um so that was all that was very nascent almost sleepy and and now you know two decades later uh fintech is moving extremely fast it's shaping things in the real world uh you know whether it's um uh you know a payment provider like a uh, like a stripe or something like that that's able to go out there and empower real small merchants in the real world to 
to uh, to accept different types of payments. Um, Venmo certainly falls in that category. Of course, they're owned by PayPal now, but uh, uh, that that ability to actually like you know, I was at a listening to uh, some some uh, musical performers a couple of uh, weeks ago, and uh, they had a um, like their tip jar was a, a Venmo code. So you go scan it and send a Venmo. So like it, it's permeating the real world and moving pretty quickly. And, and certainly, you know, uh, fintech companies like uh, Robinhood, you know, made have made a lot of news over the last year uh, with their ability to, uh, to to swing stocks and to uh, to to really play up um, uh, the the value of, of companies like GameStop in ways that uh, you know might not have been possible under you know the, the sort of older. Uh, regime. So, so we see this kind of change accelerating. We see more and more companies coming into existence, uh, and they're impacting things that are going on in the real world, and 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 having a big uh, a big uh, push on that. And I think I think that overlap with 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 crypto is worth noting. Um, you know, I like to say that I think uh, crypto is only a, going to be considered a space or an industry for a little while longer, because soon. I think crypto is just going to become essentially a form of you know, digital money and assets that um, are are quite large as a percentage of sort of the global economy. And uh, you're simply going to have more fintech companies that are building, you know, tools and crypto is going to be one of the things that they use, just like some of them you will use fiat money. Some of them will use both. Uh, and and uh, some of them will be very focused on uh, or completely focused on crypto. So I think I think that we're going to see sort of a merging of those of those two concepts. I think crypto, as it becomes more and more ubiquitous, will you know just sort of be less of thought of less as a category and more of is just you know a uh, uh, just an asset that happens to be to be digital. So that I think those are some of the big picture trends that we see happening. And, and man, is it it's going fast and it's really exciting. I want to ask a follow up there because I, I I've had a, several interviews where people. Have made a distinction between fintech world or crypto world or tech world versus the real world and to me i, I see it as the real as everything being the real world but what's the line of demarcation between it being considered you know everything the real world yeah yeah that's a that's a great question a bit philosophical um because what what is that line of demarcation there, there shouldn't be one i would argue and and this just goes back to my days at paypal uh, Allow me, if, if I may, just for a moment to talk mm -hmm. about kind of what the mission of PayPal was and then reflect that back to your question. PayPal, when it started, had a vision that, that Peter Thiel and Max Levchin, who are just both really brilliant entrepreneurs and brilliant thinkers, uh, that they that they specified, you know, in a sense was, you know, let's we're going to empower people to have more control over their money. We're going to give people more options. We're going to give them more tools. We're going to let them have choice about what they're going to do with their money. And this was on the heels of, of the uh, currency contagions that had happened around the world in many different countries in the late 90s. And there were a number of countries uh, throughout Southeast Asia, Mexico, uh, that had come under, uh, really under sort of like a currency attack because they've been manipulating their exchange rates and their interest rates. You can't really do both. Uh, so there were a lot of uh, pressure on the markets that, that came to these countries that were, you know, really, frankly, running corrupt uh, practices with their monetary policy. And, and a lot of these countries responded by locking up people's savings. They're trying to prevent, an, a, you know, an attack or a, a flight of, of money from their currency, which would further devalue it and pressure it. So they often respond by locking up uh, 
their, their citizens' money in bank accounts. And then if inflation happened, that just ate away at the value of their money. It was really awful. And a lot of people suffered uh, because of those policy choices. So PayPal was coming out of that period where we had seen that around the world and we thought maybe PayPal could be the solution. Maybe PayPal can offer the ability to move money and get, you know, limit that control of, of corrupt uh, regimes and empower people. Now, of course, PayPal fell short of that. It ended up being a great company. It ended up being a you know, phenomenal a commerce platform and has helped a lot of people in that sense uh, grow their businesses and, and get needed goods and services. So it's not a knock on PayPal, but the, you know, we didn't quite hit that vision. But I think that vision, to bring it back to your question, is important because it really says, in some sense, you know, tech has to provide a way to improve people's lives. It's got to, you know, be something that's additive to the quote unquote real world. And if it's not, what's the point of it? Um, and I think that's really a fair, uh, you know, way to judge technology and, and not look, not all technology is, is going to, you know, save lives, like, you know, from a medical perspective or, you know, enrich people's lives, you know, emotionally or spiritually, I'm not, I'm not saying it all does the same thing, but whether it's there to make people more productive, to make people safer, to educate them, to uh, provide them more time to spend with their, uh, their friends and family, whatever the case would be, tech has to deliver. It has to deliver like a real world benefit. And so I think that that blurring of, you know, of, of everyday life where technology sort of invades more and more of it and shows up in more and more of it isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think it's a good thing, but you know, I think that at the end of the day though, any piece of technology has to be there to improve people's lives in some fashion. And if you can't answer how you're making someone's life better, then, you know, it's a real question as to why, why are you building that, uh, that piece of tech? Understood. So um, that, that helps me understand that difference. Thank you very much. Um, now you mentioned PayPal and you wrote a book called um, the PayPal Awards, right? Um, and so what were these PayPal Awards? Who won and how? Oh, wow. You know, they were, it was a tumultuous uh, period of a couple of years there. Uh, Jamil, when I, when I went to work at PayPal and Peter Thiel pulled me in in late 1999, um, I really was excited about the technology, you know, and I thought that they had they had built something. They were just just launching it, just bringing it to market, and I was really excited to join the team that that he and and uh, and and Max had pulled together. You know, and they were bringing in some amazing people too, like Reed Hoffman, you know, who's later started LinkedIn, or, and uh, David Sachs, who uh, later started uh, uh, Yammer. Uh, just a real uh, incredible team. Chad Hurley, who's the uh, co-founder of uh, YouTube, is one of the first people I met there. So just like the talent was just incredible. So it was exciting to jump in and, and work with these people, but I had no idea just how tumultuous it would be over the next several years. We, the PayPal wars, we basically felt like the world against PayPal because we jumped into something. We started having growth. We started being able to accelerate the adoption of this service, which originally was going to be focused on person-to-person -person transactions, P2P transactions, and then quickly shifted to, be more uh, like B2C, uh, particularly around kind of eBay small merchants, um, where it was fulfilling a real need and helping uh, these small businesses uh, be able to, uh, you know, improve their, uh, improve their operations. 
by um, by enabling uh, transactions online. Uh, eBay was previously people were like putting a check in in the mail and mailing it or having to get a money order and mail it. It's ridiculous when you think about it. Um, but what we realized as we began to grow really quickly was that uh, there was going to be not just competition, which you could expect in a free market system, but also um, just a lot of hurdles and opponents that we didn't necessarily expect. Um, uh, certainly, there were other competitors. Elon Musk had a company called X.com, which was an online bank that was kind of our first competitor. And then the, the two companies ended up merging. That's how um, Elon became, uh, you know, a, a technically a co-founder of PayPal because uh, he'd started a, a company that merged with it. And so, um, but there were there were other competitors. Um, Yahoo had a service and uh, Bank One uh, launched in with the service. Citibank later launched in with the service. So there were a lot of, lot of other competitors that were trying to do the same thing, but we also had uh, pushback uh, from uh, many other sources. The credit card associations were very wary of PayPal. Uh, they didn't like uh, some of the things we were doing, and you know we were maybe uh, operating in a way that they hadn't seen before. So we we were constantly being um, harassed by them, and they were a major source of uh, how the how PayPal would be used. Uh, eBay itself became very hostile towards PayPal. They had their own credit card processing service that was an inferior product called Billpoint that they were trying to get people to use, and people preferred PayPal. The market, you know, the market spoke. But eBay was trying to disadvantage us and find ways to push us off their platform. So, you know, even our number one source of customers was was opposed to us. Uh, we had uh, we had fraud that came after us. We had organized crime try to use PayPal. Not that they hacked into PayPal. They just kind of walked in through the uh, the front door, took stolen credit card numbers that they'd gotten elsewhere. You know, they acquired those on the black market somewhere. And then they tried to use PayPal as a vehicle to siphon money off of those and get it out of PayPal, you know, send it to a bunch of different accounts and try to sneak it out um, through a wire at some point before that we could catch them and shut them down. So it's like this constant game of cat and mouse with organized crime. And then uh, we also, the, the government even came after us. So we had uh, just, we, we were a different type of animal. They didn't know what to think of us. So we had different uh, agencies throughout the, uh, throughout the United States and abroad that uh, really looked at us sideways and kind of thought, what are they doing? Like uh, Elliot Spitzer, who was um, later the governor, but at the time was the attorney general of New York State, uh, was uh, pretty hostile towards PayPal. Um, and, and there was even a, a, a brief period where we were shut down in the state of uh, Louisiana, I think it was, that uh, told us like, we don't know what you are. We don't know if you're a bank or something else. So just cease and desist. Of course, we also, Publish the. Uh, we sent an email to all of our um, users in that state and uh, shared the. Told them what had happened and shared the phone number of the uh, the office that had made that decision. And they, I guess, got so many calls that they quickly reversed course because they realized they were hurting people by denying them access to it. But, but I think the PayPal wars, quite simply, were this this constant battle for survival that the company faced on all these different fronts in its early years of existence, and uh, somehow miraculously. Uh, found a way to navigate that and ultimately uh, uh, not just survive, but turn into the, uh, you know, the biggest fintech company on the planet. I'm going to read your book. I'm going to get your book and I'm going to read it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, uh, yeah, I remember Spitzer. I had started AIG in February of five and he went the, and he was after Hank Greenberg at the time. So um, I remember that atmosphere, um, at least from my perspective. Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah, there was a lot. There was a lot of. There was a lot of. Let's let's assume. Let's assume that somebody's you know uh, guilty, 
and go after them. If I may editorialize for a minute, right? And, and, and let's face it, you know, with PayPal, we were building something new, Jamil, and there were a lot of times where we were making up as we went along, but uh, we were doing it, you know, with the, the good in mind of creating a, uh, a global uh, payments network. And ultimately, I think the results speak for themselves. I see that. I agree. Oh, and you can buy crypto on PayPal <laughs> today. So absolutely um, right. And that's that's actually a really cool part. And, and, and if I may just say, like, isn't there something beautiful that the original vision of, of PayPal, even if it wasn't achieved, that that concept of empowerment, uh, certainly you can see echoes of that in crypto and the promise that crypto has provided and is already delivering. Um, you know, and that's part of the reason why I'm I'm so excited to be involved in the space. You know, through TransitNet, but uh, th that that chance now, then in some sense, for PayPal has come full circle to be an on ramp for for people to uh, you know participate in crypto that otherwise wouldn't necessarily easily have access or know about it. I think it's really exciting and, and kind of poetic. I agree. So I want to thank you very much for your time today. This has been a it's been a real honor. Um, I've learned a lot from you. So so thank you. Uh, I do have one last question. Um, how can people find out more information about you, about TransitNet, um, about CapLinks? How can they do that? Oh, well, the honor is all mine, and I just really appreciate the chance to be here. Um, if you'd like to learn more about TransitNet, please go to the TransitNet website. That's transitnet.io. There's a little form right there on the homepage where you could just put in your email address, and uh, uh, it's, it's purely to get an invitation to the site, so you can get on the waiting list. Uh, to get an invite when the title registry goes live. So go to transitnet.io uh, and uh, and check it out. We also have a lot of informative articles about uh, about the, the crypto ecosystem that we've been publishing there. So check it out and, and give us, uh, you know, take a look, give us some feedback on uh, on what you see. And if anyone wants to connect with me, uh, I think the best way to do that is on, probably on Twitter. Go to, uh, on Twitter, I'm, I'm there at Eric M. Jackson. That's E-R-I-C, the letter M as in Michael, Jack, and then Jackson, J-A-C-K, so and Eric M. Jackson on Twitter. Uh, and uh, give me a follow. I, I like to uh, share a lot of stuff and engage with people. So love to uh, love to uh, uh, connect with people out there. Awesome. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. It's a pleasure.